0: Good morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 15, 15, uh, John chapter five. No, my sight is not so bad that a five looks like a 15. Not yet, at least. We're going to open up to John chapter five, and we're going to start with verse 17 and go through verse 29 this morning. Much to my chagrin and dismay, yes, we're actually going to try to cover that much ground this morning, but it's a long story. But anyway, the short version of it is, is I really wished I would split this up into like three pieces instead of doing it all at once. But I have somewhere I want to be on Easter Sunday, and to get there, I just have to do this big passage today. So you'll just have to be content with what I have and not everything that I have to give you from this passage as we did last week, uh, and we will continue to do at least for a little while, is someone will come up and read the passage for us. Well, they'll read it for me that we're going through. And so Randy is going to come up and read John chapter 5, 17 through 29.
1: Jesus answered them, My father is working still, and I am working So the Jews sought even more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, likewise the Son does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these who that you may be marveled. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son that all men should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For from as the Father has life in himself, so he has given to the Son to have life in himself. And as given him authority to execute judgment, also because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment.
0: Thank you, Randy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us this word. These words from the Apostle John in this moment when he is listening to Jesus and this continuing confrontation with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And the stunning and amazing revelation of who he is that comes from it. Thank you, Father, that it is often in these stunning moments of conflict that we see who you really are and you reveal yourself. And we ask you, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us this morning. We ask for the spirit to fall upon us with eyes that can see and ears that can hear and minds that can understand and hearts that believe what you're telling us about who you are and about why you are. And I ask, Lord, that as we walk forward through these verses, that you would put the words in my mouth that you want spoken to your people this morning for our good. And I ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So if you remember from last week when we started and did the first 16 verses of this chapter 5, Jesus Heals the lame guy at the pool of Bethesda. And he does this on a Sabbath. And he tells the guy to pick up his mat and walk. And as a result, it leads to the Pharisees getting all bent out of shape because this guy's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And then it leads to this direct confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees over this. And he makes this statement in verse 17 that I didn't cover last week. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. The first thing is just to catch the irony of Jesus's response. They've accused him of breaking the Sabbath, which is the fourth commandment. And he tells them the reason he is breaking it is because God is breaking it. (laughs) You're working on the Sabbath. I'm working on the Sabbath because my father God is working on the Sabbath. What? Wait, how does that work? How does that work that the one who says keep the Sabbath holy is working on the Sabbath? Well, it works because the Sabbath is a thing of rest and restoration. It works not because God doesn't have to obey the same rules that he applies to all of us. But there are certain things that have to occur on the Sabbath and even the Jews themselves acknowledged it. In fact, they created an entire sophisticated rule system around how much you could do on the Sabbath. Like you could walk a couple of miles. But if you did more than a couple of miles, you're breaking the Sabbath. What? How does that What? What's so special about two miles? Nothing. Nothing at all. They just picked it. It just made sense to them. And so the issue is they still are missing the heart of the Sabbath. Just as we struggle with grasping and living in the heart of the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath was to rest the body, the heart, the soul, and the mind from the day's usual work, the week's usual work, And be focused on worshiping the father and spend it in time worshiping him and thanking him for the good things he's given us. Crying out to him for the struggles and hurts that we have. All the things that we've come to know is a typical practice for us on our Sabbath practice coming to church. But the Pharisees, they have this issue that keeps coming up, biting them in the back. The Pharisees are putting their rules and authority over God. They're saying to the one who makes the rule, you can't do that. And they're saying to him, you can't do that. Besides, it's sort of like, really, you're going to tell God what God can't do. Besides that part of it, their rules show they don't understand the Sabbath to begin with. They don't even grasp what it is they're making a rule for. But yet they make a rule anyway. And anybody who breaks the rule is breaking their authority. Maybe that's really the real heart of the struggle for them. It's their authority that's being challenged and they don't like it. Well, we know they don't like it. But the fact that Jesus is pointing out to them that God is actually challenging their authority is the bigger problem for them to grasp with. But they won't. They're not going to mess with that. And if Jesus had stopped right there, that would have been enough. I mean, really? Wait. Let me get this. Wait. You, you mean God is breaking the Sabbath? How? If He had just stopped with that, it would have been more than they could handle, more than they could absorb and comprehend. But then He goes another step further, and really gets them upside down, turning over the apple cart, with verse 18. And then that while that he was calling himself equal with God. Now, Jesus did not need to explicitly say I am equal to God by calling God his father. The religious leaders knew he was making this claim without explicitly saying it. For us as Westerners, we're kind of pre-wired in our minds and our attitudes and our way of thinking that the person has to say explicitly what they think or what they mean. And so we're looking at this and going, okay, how do you get that Jesus is calling himself equal to God by saying my father is working until now by calling God his father? I don't, I don't see how you get there. That's true. As Westerners, we don't understand how you get there. If he doesn't say it explicitly, how can you say that's what he thinks? But that's because in their culture, to call God your father in the way that Jesus is doing it is to make yourself equal to him. And in their culture, when one son speaks of his father, he speaks as though he's a representative of the father with equal authority. That's the cultural mindset that they have. That's how they knew what Jesus was really saying, even though for you and I, he doesn't explicitly say it. I am equal to God because he is my father. Okay. But what does it mean to be equal with God? What does that mean? Well, we have to go back to something I talked about a few weeks ago, several weeks ago. You have to go back to the understanding of the term that Jesus uses most often for himself, son of man. And that means we have to go back to Daniel chapter 7. So go ahead and open your Bibles backwards to the book of Daniel. And find chapter 7. And we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. In a different time and place, I would love to just start way back, like at the beginning of chapter 7. But I'm afraid it'll take too long. So let's just look at verses 13 and 14. And Daniel says, That I saw in the night visions. There's a couple of things to grasp about this passage from Daniel chapter seven before we get back to John. The first one is that this vision that Daniel has describing this son of man who comes to the ancient of days and the ancient of days gives him all this authority. I mean, look, is there really anything left that he doesn't have authority over by the time the ancient of days gives him dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people's all nations and all languages should serve him and that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Is there anything left for him to have charge and be over and have authority over after you've given him all this? No, there's nothing left. This is literally everything. This is, as I've said before, every square inch of the universe now belongs to this son of man. And this ancient of days, is universally understood to be God as we know him, God, the father sitting on his throne in heaven. And the son of man is the one whom comes to him and he gives all this authority to. And Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. I'm that son of man here in Daniel. That's me, I'm him. I'm that guy. And so he's now the one given all authority by God, the father over all things and so that all peoples all nations and all languages should serve him so just as an aside if he has all this authority does he have authority to change the rules for the sabbath yes that's that's a big yes that's a big capital yes with an exclamation mark he has the authority to do whatever because it's been given to him and just grasping that at least for me, is mind blowing that he has that much authority. I mean, that's equal to God. He's given, God has given him every inch of authority that he himself possess. But then we have to recognize that this is done within the context of Daniel chapter seven. And this is the one where Daniel has his vision of the four beasts. And each one is a kingdom that has dominion over the earth. Each one is a success. Each each beast is a representative of a physical human kingdom that has dominion over the whole earth, starting with the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans. And each one becomes more powerful and their dominion and spread of influence and control reaches farther and farther across the globe. And when we look at human history, that's exactly what happened. And then, then... After the last beast, who looks like the most dominant, widespreading beast of all, ruler and dominion kingdom of all, then comes this son of man who's given dominion over all things. He is the ultimate ruler. He sets above everybody, even Alexander the Great, even Xerxes, even all the Caesars. He now sits above all of them. His dominion and his rulership is greater than all of them. That's what it means to be called the son of man. And that's what Jesus is saying when he calls God his father and uses the term son of man as his self-identifying term. So now we get to go back to John chapter 5 and grasp what Jesus is saying here in light of Daniel chapter 7. See, Jesus' equality with God is a result of God the Father decreeing that he is equal in authority and power to God the Father. He is granted by God the Father and decreed by God the Father all the authority and power. That's why he is equal to him. This is not, nor has it ever been, a question of is Jesus equal to God in likeness or deity? Those questions will come later. We will deal with those, promise you, when we get into the next chapter, when we start looking at the I am statements. Okay? But for now, in this moment right here, just give me the benefit of the doubt. In this microcosm of a second, when he's standing in front of the Pharisees and says that he is equal to God. It is not about that. It is about his authority and power. This is about him being equal in authority and rulership. Therefore, he has the authority to change the rules about the Sabbath. And it is because he is obedient to his father, like any good Jewish son should be in their culture. As an obedient son, which was expected and highly prized, he is given the authority just like in their culture. Therefore, he is equal To his father. And they understand this. They understand it so good. That it really makes them mad. In fact. The desire to kill Jesus. Is a direct violation. Of their own ethical code. Do you get this? It upsets them so bad. That he's breaking their rules. They want to break their own rules. To kill him. And get rid of him. They are, as Jesus will say later, showing who their father is even now in this moment. In this very question of who is your father and are you an obedient son, they're displaying who their father is. And it's not the same father that Jesus has. But then he goes on, just like we have to go on here, as much more as there is to say about these two verses, We need to go on to the verse 19 through 24 and all this work that Jesus is doing, all this doing of work on the Sabbath, which is how this whole conflict got started. And Jesus just shows his authority and obedience to the father by continuing to work on the Sabbath like his father has and does. Remember how this all started. Jesus has just healed a lame man so he could walk. Why was that guy lame? What? How did that? Was he, he was there at the pool for a long time because he'd been lame for a really long time. But why was he lame? Well, we aren't given the specifics. Jesus kind of hints at it towards the end of that miracle in verse 14 and 15, that maybe there was some disobedience or sin involved because he says to the guy, look, you are well, don't sin so that something worse would happen to you. Or don't send any more that something worse would happen to you. But it may not be the case. That's just sort of drawing a conclusion from a possibility. It may very well have been the case that the guy didn't receive his lameness as a result of sinful actions as a punishment. But it was a result of the fallen world we live in. And the breaking of the perfect world in the Garden of Eden. Because when we look at the at the Genesis account, God created a perfect world in 6 days and rested on the 7th. Man was created, all the animals, everything, it was good. And he rested. But then it wasn't good. In chapter 3 of Genesis, when the evil one tempts Eve and Adam and they succumb to the temptation, and now now it's not good. It's really quite broken. It needs someone to fix it. And that's going to take work to fix it. And so here we are. The father created man and rested from all of his work. And now Jesus is picking up where the father stopped to renew and restore creation from the fall. He's picking up on the Sabbath to finish the work that was started but interrupted by sin to restore and renew the creation and healing this man on the Sabbath is the first sign of his restoration ministry and his reclamation ministry to reclaim everything back under the rulership of the Lord Jesus as king and ruler over all things. And this is it. The Sabbath is about restoration From now on, the Sabbath is about restoration. And Jesus is just picking this up and going forward with the work. And that has implications for us that we'll look at in a couple of minutes. But yet there's still more. I mean, if we just stopped here, this would be enough. This would be, I mean, for me, this is mind blowing. This is overwhelming that he's this agent of restoration who picks up on the Sabbath to finish what was broken back in Genesis but it goes, says it more equally stunning and shocking to me is that not only is God revealing his amazing works and wonders to us, but he is revealing more of them to Jesus. Also look at what he says there in verse. Now I got to find it. Where did he say that? I made the mistake. Oh, verse 20 for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these. He will show him. The hymn is Jesus. So let me get this straight. These amazing works that God is showing you, Jesus, he's not done showing you amazing things. There's even more marvelous, amazing things for you to see than what you've already seen. Whoa. And then there is the whole reason There's all this marvelous, amazing things yet to be revealed. What does it say? So that, purpose clause, right? Remember, so that is a purpose clause. It's the purpose of what is being talked about. So that you all may marvel. All of us, God is revealing more and more marvelous things to the Jesus so that you and I may be marveled and find it marvelous. Even the showing more marvelous things to Jesus is really for you and me, not for him. It's almost as if Jesus has to put up with having a few things held back so that you and I can be marveled. The natural expectation in that day was that a person given authority was to be honored as we get towards the end of that paragraph here in verses 23 and 24. And the implication here is if the Pharisees honor God, they will honor Jesus. But they won't. They can't. Well, I mean, they can, but they won't. They won't let themselves do it. They just won't let themselves honor Jesus. I mean, this is because, look, The honoring of Jesus is to an acceptance of who he says he is. And they can't go there. Their hard hearts won't let them go there. And that's why they can't admit it to themselves or to others who he is and why they can't honor him. Jesus has to be who he is. And we have to accept him as who he is claiming to be if we're going to honor Jesus. It requires believing that he is God's son and the one given authority for judgment and eternal life. Don't overlook this. It requires believing that he is God's son and the one given authority for judgment and eternal life. You have to believe that if you're going to honor Jesus. And that's not an easy step to take. For those of us who've been believers for a long time, that doesn't sound so hard. But go back to when you didn't believe it. That was a big step, and it still is today. And again, if if Jesus had just stopped here at verse 24, that would have been enough for today. Look, Jesus, really, you're overwhelming the Pharisees and the rest of us already. To save it for another day when we can absorb it. But no, not Jesus. Jesus has to go further. He has to go on and say verses 25 through 29. I mean, like I said, it would have been enough, but now he's got to go further. He's got to talk about the resurrection and how there's an hour coming when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and will live. What are you doing, Jesus? Where are you going with this? This is Jesus also explaining his authority as judge over the earth. Do you remember last week when I read Isaiah 35, where the lame walking and the deaf hearing was a sign of the Messiah's rival? And that was in the context of the Messiah bringing judgment upon the earth in Isaiah chapter 35. So for him to be the Messiah who heals the lame, so they walk by simply saying, get up. He also has to be the Messiah who's bringing judgment. But where Isaiah stops is where Jesus keeps going because Isaiah stops with the judging Messiah who brings punishment for the wicked and the unsaved and deliverance for his people. And Jesus takes it a step further by raising the dead as part of his judgment. This is just stunning. It's not enough that he's going to be a judge. He's going to raise the dead as well. And when Jesus says there is an hour coming when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. I think Jesus is playing on some double meaning here. As the next couple of sentences show, he's specifically referring to the physical resurrection in those sentences. However, also believe he's hinting at spiritual resurrection, like in Ephesians 2, chapter one where we were dead in our trespasses and sins and Christ made us alive with himself. This is just stunning. He speaks and the dead are raised to life. He speaks and the dead, cold, stone-cold, dead heart comes alive, hearing and believing and having faith. It's also striking here to me that Jesus tells the Pharisees, they will see this amazing event, and then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter eleven. I'm like, really, those guys don't deserve nothing, and you're going to give them a resurrection for them to see. And in fact, when we get to to Lazarus's resurrection, and then later on in the gospel, it even specifically says that the Pharisees were so frustrated. Over Lazarus being raised from the dead and because of all the trouble it caused them that he raised somebody from the dead, Jesus raised somebody from the dead, they wanted to kill Lazarus. Wait, think about this for a second. I I know we're not there, but by the time we get there, you'll forget I've said this anyway. This dead guy is raised back to life as a miraculous work of God. And it frustrates you so much that God did this miracle, you want to kill the guy and put him back in the grave? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you people? What, how did you get to a place where you want to kill a guy just because God raised him from the dead? How? Jesus is messing with their life and he's messing with it in a big way. Now, there's a huge historical perspective about What they were afraid of as far as the Romans and they're taking, you know, and insurrection and everything that's happened. And so there's that part of what's happening with the Pharisees, their fear of Rome clamping down and stomping with their feet on top of the Jewish populations and completely destroying Jerusalem and the temple, just like they do in AD 70, really with. That was one of the, everything we know about AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that was what the Pharisees were afraid of with Jesus and leading an insurrection against Rome. But that was just the excuse. That was just the skin of a reason that was stuffed with a lie about why they wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. The truth of the matter is, is they just didn't like having their authority challenged, having their world that they had worked so hard to create taken away from them by God, for something different. I know that's something none of us ever struggle with. Having something we've worked so hard to get, God takes it away from us and be okay with that. But as we look at verse 29, it's clear that this is pointing to the great resurrection of the dead and the subsequent judgment described in Jesus' second coming in the book of Revelation. That's the ultimate fulfillment of his authority as the king and the judge is what we understand of everything that happens at his second coming and the resurrection that comes from it. Those who are raised for judgment and those who are raised for eternal life. Those who have done evil for the resurrection of judgment and those who have done good to the eternal life. And and what does it mean to do good? Jesus even tells us right here himself to believe in him who has been sent is the way you receive eternal life. So it brings us to the inevitable questions of, okay, if I agree with everything you've said, so what? What do I do now? Okay. This is the first one. Do you hear Jesus speaking to your heart and soul this morning? For some of you, perhaps many years, your ears and hearts have been dead to the cause of Christ to believe in him. But today you hear him speaking life into your heart, soul, and mind. Then believe he is God, God's son, The one raised from the dead and trust him as your savior. Do that. That's what you do if you believe what I'm saying. Remember when Jesus said the father would reveal even more wonders. The purpose of that is so we may be amazed and marvel at God and Jesus. Are you amazed at Jesus? Has he just become sort of ho-hum? Oh, there's another healing. Ah, what do you know? He braced, he, he opened somebody's blind eyes. Ah, yes, another resurrection. Such, isn't it such a pleasant thing? Has he become whole hum? If he has, what's going on that you are not amazed and marveled by this Jesus? What has happened that caused you to see him in such a common way? I don't know about you. I know what happens to me when that happens. I just get too comfortable with Jesus. I think of him too much as my friend and not enough as my glorious savior. I forget who I am and where I came from. Maybe that's what happens to you when Jesus becomes ho-hum. Another thing for us to do is we are to do the works we see Jesus doing, right? This is simple. Copy Jesus. Jesus does something. We copy Jesus. He's working just as the father was working. He's doing the same works the father is doing. So we are to do the same works, even if those works are on a Sunday. I acknowledge and understand exactly what some of you are already thinking, but there are certain things that Jesus does we can't do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. We understand that. I'm not raising somebody from the dead. Jesus might do something special with me as one of his instruments at a hospital bed. But outside of that, no, I'm not called to raise the dead. But we're not talking about those phenomenal works that show you are God's son. We're talking about the simple stuff. The stuff of Blessing those whom he puts in our life. Whether it is speaking truth to them that they need to hear or speaking hope to them that they need to hear. Even if it's a Sunday. And when we are doing the works we see Jesus doing. Or those he calls us to go do. We are granted the authority to do them. Just as the father gave him authority, all authority, he also grants us authority to go out and do the things he calls us to do. This is why Jesus can say to his disciples, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Therefore, act with that kind of confidence. Act with the confidence you're given the authority to do the good works Jesus sends you to do. Sends us to do. I don't know about you, but that one, the last one, act with that kind of confidence was really us, was probably the most significant one for me. I tend to be a little more timid than most folks. I tend not to assume I have authority. And yet the word of God is confronting me with, look, you've been called to do this and this. Go act like you've been called to go do this and this. Act like you're one who's been given the authority to do it and go do it. And I hope that that somehow is a a confrontation and an encouragement for you. Go do. You have the authority. It's been given to you to do what you've been called to do. Go do it. Now, of course, we still got to work out the parts of doing it in the spirit along with the father and the son and the Holy Spirit versus running off and doing it by myself and my own strength. but first step into the authority we have been given. And with that, that's enough for me today to just do what he's told me to do and act like I have the authority to do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you that you just continue to reveal more and more amazing and marvelous things to us so that we are amazed and marvel at you. And I pray, Lord, that as we finish our time together as a family worshiping, that you would just make yourself even more glorious. And it would be okay with me if you did something really marvelous this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.